Uh, any children here, kindergarten to second grade, can be dismissed to children's church as well as uh, children who are going to the children's choir, third through fifth graders. And with the rest of you, open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah 57. It's on page 735, if you're using one of those Bibles in the pew rack. Page 735, Isaiah 57. And today we're going to be looking at just one verse, verse 15. Isaiah 57, 15. Let me read that verse. For this is what the High and Lofty One says. He who lives forever, whose name is Holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with Him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we think of the story of the Apostle Paul before he became the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus and how you opened his eyes, the eyes of his heart spiritually, so that he could see that Jesus is the Son of God. And Lord, we see Paul's experience as a paradigm for what we need to experience, not only to become Christians, but to grow as Christians. Lord, we just confess that our eyes are blind, that our eyes are darkened, that our hearts are darkened. So, Lord, we pray this morning through the Bible, through your word and through your Holy Spirit, that you would open up the eyes of our hearts. Lord, help us first and foremost to see you. Help us to see that you are a holy God, a consuming fire, that you are awesome and glorious. Lord, that you have no beginning and no end, that you are the Lord Almighty who reigns over this world. Help us to see that you are beautiful, that you are resplendent and you're glorious, that, that you deserve all praise and honor and glory forever and ever. Lord, help us to see the magnitude of your majesty. Help us to savor, Lord, what a great and unspeakably glorious God you are. Lord, we confess that our, our vision of you is so small if we have any vision of you at all. So, Lord, give us a glimpse. Give us a glimpse of the glory. And then, Lord, once we've seen you, we pray that you might help us to see ourselves for who we really are. Lord, help us to see that we truly are wretched sinners. That we are a broken and sinful people who even in our best moments, at our, our greatest points, Lord, our, our good works are just as filthy rags before you. That, Lord, our motives are corrupt. Our hearts very rarely seek after you purely. Our hearts very rarely love you and very rarely love our neighbors. And even when we do, Lord, it's so weak and pathetic. It doesn't even deserve mention. Oh, Lord, help us to see that we are guilty before you, that we are a sinful people who deserve judgment. Help us, Lord, to have fearlessness in assessing our spiritual condition. And then, Lord, after you've shown us your holiness in our utter despicable sinfulness, I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to see Jesus Christ. Help us to see the cross. 
Help us to see that blood flowing down, the, the forgiving grace that we just sang about. Help us to see, Lord Jesus, that you are the Savior of men and that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Help us to see that the beauty of your willing sacrifice for our sins. Help us, Lord, to see that there is no hope for us apart from the name of the Lord. Help us to love you, Jesus Christ, and to trust you completely. And then, Lord, as you restore us, as you forgive us, I pray that you'd help us to look outwards and see the church. Lord, help us to see the body of Christ. Help us to see the church not as some place we go to get something, but help us to see our brothers and sisters. Lord, help us to love one another. Help us to get out beyond ourselves and truly care about each other. Lord, this is totally contrary to our natural wiring. Help us, Lord, to, to care for those who are in need in our congregation. I pray specifically this morning, Lord, for the family of Marilyn Livingston and for Daisy Sargent as she recovers from her back surgery. And Lord, I'm sure there are so many others that, that I'm even, not even aware of who are hurting. Lord, I pray, help us, for those we know, to reach out and to do what we can. Lord, we pray then that you not only help us to love each other as a church, but that you might finally lift our eyes up and help us to see the world as you see it. That the world, Lord, is, is a mission field. That every time we walk out of this church, we walk out into the mission field. That you have called us and restored us so that we might go out and love others. Lord, we pray for the South Shore of Boston that we might see a great renewal, a great revival, a great awakening come here again. Lord, we pray that you would lift up our eyes to the ends of the earth. We thank you for this missions conference, Lord, and that we just had. Thank you for the missions money that we're raising to support foreign missionaries. Thank you for the message you heard last week. And Lord, we pray that it wouldn't just be a one-time thing, but that the seeds you planted in our hearts last week would bear fruit, that we might have a concern for the lost. Lord, give us a burning passion and concern for people who don't know Jesus. Help us, Lord, to love them and to, to pray for them fervently for their coming to know Christ. Lord, we pray, open our eyes to see the universe as you see it. And now, Lord, as we open up the Bible, we pray that you would give us that vision correction that we need. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So the question for the morning is, uh, the kickoff question is, uh, where is God? Where, where does God live? If you wanted to find God, where would you go to to meet with him and hang out with him and talk to him. The uh, Russian cosmonaut German Titoy was the first human being to circle the Earth in orbit. And he did that in 1961. And when he came back to planet Earth, he, he uh, was, I guess he was given a press conference or something, and he had this to say about God. He said, some people say there is a God out there. But in my travels around the Earth all day long, I looked around and didn't see him. I saw no God, nor angels. So, where is God? I mean, is he, is he up? Well, we've been up. And we didn't see him up there. And we have telescopes that look way, 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 way up, if you want to think of outer spaces as up. It's not really up, it's just out, but whatever. And we've looked out there, and, and we have yet to find, you know, some guy with a long beard, or some angels, you know, strumming harp. We haven't seen them, so... You know, like, where is God? Where is he? And, uh, you know, this is more than just a philosophical ball to kick around. This is our lives. This is reality. Uh, you know, when, when you lose two close relatives, one after the other, 
And then shortly after that, your child is diagnosed with ADHD. And then shortly after that, you find out that the roof on your house is kaput and you've got to replace the whole thing. You don't know where the money's going to come from. And when these things happen, bang, 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 which they tend to do in life for some reason, that whole thing about it rains and pours is, is really true. You know, you start to wonder, where is God? And this is not just a little philosophical thing to kick around. This is like, where is he? Where does he live? How can I get in touch with him? Has he left me? And we feel like the, the little kid, you know, in the shopping mall who's got his dad's hand and then lets go for a minute to look at something and then turns around and can't see dad anywhere, just sees all these foreign knees and waists and, and instantly dissolves into a blubbering mass, you know, dad, just crying and sobbing. And it, it never ceases to amaze me how puny my faith is and how quickly I can go from confident Christian, full of faith, to blubbering, scared little kid just by just a few things happening in my life and I'm suddenly like, where's God? Where's God? And it's like, come on, Jeremy. You know, but, but, you know, where is he? How do you get in touch with him? And I think it's especially an important question when we uh, blow it royally, when we sin, when we you know, just fall on our faces and do stupid things that hurt people, that hurt ourselves and hurt others. You know what? Where, where, where is God then? And if someone could give me God's address and I were to go and knock on God's door with my sin in my hands, I, I wonder if God would even answer the door. You know, that's sometimes I wonder. If he looks out the little people, he's like, oh my goodness, you know, and <laughs> quietly walks away from the door. <laughs> because because I, I, am, I am such a sinful person. I, I fall so far short of what God wants me to be. I wonder if he even opened the door for me. Uh, you know, where is God? What is his address? Where can I find him? And Isaiah 51 is, uh, 57 verse 15 is really cool. It's about where God lives. And what I find so interesting in this passage is that apparently God lives in two places. I don't know if one's his main home and one's a vacation home. or you know, I don't know how it, it works exactly, but he apparently is in two places. You can, you can find him in one of two places. You can access him in one of two places. And the first place is in the first half of verse 15. He says, I live in a high and holy place. That's the first place we find God. A high and holy place. This is the language of transcendence. This is the idea that God is he's beyond, He's above, He's apart from. In philosophical terms, we would say that God is wholly other, W-H-O-L-L-Y. He's, he's completely distinct and separate from the universe. Uh, there's the universe and then there's God, and, and God transcends the universe. He's above and beyond it. And to, to communicate his transcendence and his highness and his holiness, verse 15 begins with three titles for God. And each of these titles, you'll notice, emphasize a different aspect or dimension of God's transcendence. Look at the first title in verse 15. For this is what the high and lofty one says. And here we have the image of God transcending space. He, he's above the universe that we know. I mean, th this is why people talk about God being up. I mean, he's not literally up, but he, he's, he's transcendent over. He, he's apart from this space that we call the universe and reality. Uh, th that phrase is an interesting phrase, the high and lofty one. It's actually used several times in Isaiah. And uh, one of the most important uses is in Isaiah chapter 6. So what I want you to do is, we're going to look back and forth between two chapters. Could you bookmark Isaiah 
and flip over to Isaiah 6 real quickly. And then I'll have you bookmark Isaiah 6 and we'll go back and forth and back and forth just so you know what's coming. But Isaiah chapter 6, go back a few chapters, verse 1. Here's that same phrase, high and lofty. The same phrase. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. And of course, Isaiah chapter 6 is an important chapter. This is when Isaiah receives his call to be a prophet. This was when Isaiah first really saw God and uh, God told him to go be his servant. Isaiah 6, 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. Here's the phrase, high and exalted. Now in Hebrew, that is the exact phrase that is used in Isaiah chapter 57, 15, if you go back there. For this is what the high and lofty one says. So the image here is of God seated on a throne, high and exalted, far above the creation. He's the ruler. He's above it. He's beyond it. Uh, or as the Bible tells us from the beginning then, God is the creator. This is one of the major messages of the Bible, that there is a creator God, which by definition means that he's outside of his creation. I mean, by definition, if you're a creator, you are separate from, in some sense, that which you've created. You know, it's logically impossible to create yourself. It just, it doesn't, it's like A equals minus A. I mean, you, it just doesn't make sense logically. So if God is the creator, it means that by definition he transcends it. You know, there's the painting and there's the painter. There's the... The, uh, you know, there's Rhapsody in Blue and there's George Gershwin. And, and you can hear some of Gershwin in Rhapsody in Blue, but he's not Rhapsody in Blue. They're separate and distinct things. And so we have the Creator who's transcendent. He's high and lofty over the universe. Now this would have sounded a little strange to the people who lived around Israel in that time. The, the pagan idolatrous systems that were surrounding Israel and the other nations. Because, you know, if, if you studied any kind of like... Uh, polytheism, like the, the Greek mythology or anything like that, you know that the gods are, are really part of this system. Whether it was the Egyptian sun god, Ra, or the Canaanite god of the underworld, Mot, or the Mesopotamian moon god, Sin. Whoever the god was, these gods and goddesses were part of the world system in which we lived. Or some of you who have studied Greek mythology, maybe you remember that from school. And you know, Greek mythology, it's like watching a soap opera. <laughs> It's dirty, it's nasty. I mean, these people are treacherous, backbiting. The gods, I mean, they're powerful, but they're just kind of like big people, really. And they act like big people, and they stab each other in the back, and they turn on each other. It's just, you know, it's kind of dirty and gross to read this stuff uh, that the gods did in Greek mythology. That's because all of these pagan systems saw God as contained in or as a part of the world system in which we live. The physical world and the spiritual world were just two sides of the same coin. And this is so different from biblical religion where God says, no, no, I'm the creator. I'm here. I made the moon. I made the sun. I made the earth. They're not gods. They're just things that I made. And it's a different conception. And it would have just sounded totally foreign to the people in Israel's day. It, you know, it might sound foreign to people today because that old pagan way of looking at reality has never really gone away. It's just permutated and taken on new iterations and new forms. I think one of the places where you can sort of hear the old pagan worldview again today is in what we might call the, uh, the New Age movement. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's not really a, a religion. It's kind of a, a complex, a constellation of ideas. You know, someone who's sort of versed in New Age today, you'd hear this very commonly, they'd say something like, you know, I, uh, I think God is in each of us. 
you know, where is God? Well, you know, look inside. In fact, we are all kind of God. We're all manifestations of God. God is one, and, and you're one, and we're God. And, and, but you hear, that's the pagan idea, that, that the universe and God are coterminous, that they're the same thing, and, and that somehow we are just manifestations of God because God is everything and he's all around us. And, you know, in case you're fuzzy on that topic, you're not God. I mean, in case you were wondering, uh, you're not. Neither am I. I know sometimes you thought I was, but I really, <laughs> I, I'm really not. My wife has reminded me that I'm not. Um, we're not divine. If you want to find God, it, you know, meditating and looking inward to your belly button, you're not going to find him there. Just find lint. It's, he's not there. We aren't God. Do we reflect the creative brilliance of God? Of course. We are made in His image. We, we somehow reflect what God is like. But you know, if the universe were to go poof, God wouldn't go poof. God is, is transcendent. He's high and lofty. What an awesome God He is that He thought up and spoke into existence this thing that we call reality, that we experience in which we live. And, and I think all of those ideas are... are in that phrase, the high and lofty one. He's above and beyond. He transcends space. But look at his second title. He also transcends time. For this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever. So where's God? He's in a high and holy place. He's outside of space and he's outside of time. Uh, God is a timeless being. He he's, calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Uh, you know, the little kid asks the classic question, who made God? And of course the answer is, well, nobody made God. He just is. And, uh, or as God said, I am. He just is. And I can't even begin to wrap my mind around that. Just like I can't begin to wrap my mind around someone who's outside of the universe because I don't understand what that means. Uh, it's because I'm a creature of space-time. And perhaps this is really logical if you think about it that way. Uh, physicists and scientists tell us that that space and time are integrally related, that it's a, a, a matrix or a continuum so that space relates to time and time relates to space. You can't have space without time and vice versa. Well, if that's true and God is outside of space, well, then he probably would be outside of time too. I mean, that's as close as I can get to understanding it. But, but he's a great and awesome God. He lives in a high and holy place. He transcends the universe that he made. He's outside of space. He's outside of time. But then we come to his third title, and I'll tell you what, this is the one that gets just a little bit uncomfortable for me. You know, up to this point, it was kind of interesting. All right, God outside of space, outside of time. That's kind of cool. I like to think about that. But, but this next title gets in my face. It starts messing with me. And uh, here it is. God says, first of all, the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, here's the third title, whose name is Holy. God is Holy. Not only does he transcend space and time, but he also transcends me uh, morally and spiritually. God is he's pure. He's morally pure. He's, he's righteous beyond comprehension. And th by definition, I am not. I am a sinful man. I, I am fall so far short of drawing close to God's glory. I, I'm not even on the radar. I'm not even on the the map anywhere. You remember this in Isaiah chapter 6. You could bookmark Isaiah 57 again. Go back to Isaiah 6. 
This aspect of God's holiness dominates Isaiah's vision of God. Isaiah 6 says, In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs. And remember studying this, these are these burning angelic beings. In fact, the word seraph means burning one. These angelic beings uh, were there, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. With two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook. The temple was filled with smoke. With this awesome vision of God. But what I find so interesting is Isaiah's response. What does he say in verse 5? Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. I'm, I'm toast. I'm dead meat. This is it. I'm kaput. Bye-bye. He's just saying, I'm a dead man. But what is it about God that creates in him this sense of utter unraveling? He says, For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. It wasn't that Isaiah was struck by the bigness of God and said, Woe to me because I'm really little and God's really big. Or, Woe to me, I'm trapped inside of time and He's outside of time. Even though those are amazing things. He said, Woe, God is holy and I am unclean. And everyone around me is unclean. Ah! It was God's moral purity. God's uh, blazing hurricane force holiness that just burned and, and blew over Isaiah's soul and blew away all his self-justification and all his sense of self-created morality. And he was just left bare to look at himself for what he really was. And he said, woe is me, I'm, I'm dead meat because God is so holy and I am so not holy. And God transcends Isaiah morally and he's, he's just undone. We are a sinful people. And this is hard for us to hear. It's hard for us to understand. But whenever God shows up in the Bible, t people tend to come away with that impression very strongly. Um, you, you know, you can hear it in that quote that I read from that Russian cosmonaut. Actually, there's more to the quote. I put it in your sermon notes if you want to look at it there. But the quote's pretty amazing. German Stefanovich Titoy. He said, some people say there is a God out there, but in my travels around the earth all day long, I looked around and didn't see him. I saw no God nor angels. And then this is the interesting, this is the rest of the quote. The rocket was made by our own people. I don't believe in God. I believe in man, his strength, his possibilities, his reason. And you know, I would probably never, ever say that out loud. You know, except unless I was reading it, let me text, you know. But, but, but my life says it so much of the time. Even though I would never utter these words, I go, oh, of course that's not true, I believe in God. But, but my life sometimes tells a different story. I live as if I do just believe in my abilities, my reason, my strength, as if there's no God. And that's the essence of sin, is, is the self in the center self-defined morality, self-defined life, self-defined religion, everything coming out of myself. I do what I want on my terms and my timetable 
with my money and my friends and my body and you know whatever it is it's all mine and I'm the one who's in control of it and this is the essence of sin but when God shows up and, and he shows his holiness this is all just kind of swept away and Isaiah is left there realizing that he's a sinful man in the presence of a holy God our God is a consuming fire a consuming fire and a holy God. And I just, I don't even see it. That's how blind I am. I rarely even see it. What a great God He is. So do you want to find God? Do you want to know where He lives? Well, the first place that He lives is, He says, I, am, I live in a high and holy place. He is a holy, righteous, and awesome God. I live in a high and holy place, but also, aren't those beautiful words? I live in a high and holy place, but also with Him who is contrite, lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Apparently, God can be found in two places. You either have to go way, 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 way up or you have to go way, 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 way down. It, God apparently lives in the extremes, the top and the bottom, but not in the middle. If you look in the middle, you won't find Him. You either need to go to heaven, which is impossible, or we need to go down on our faces before Him to humble ourselves. That's where we can find God. He says that He's with those who are contrite and lowly in spirit, that word contrite in Hebrew, the, the literal translation of that word is crushed. He's with those who are crushed. You know, my kids have these sidewalk chalk. It's like this big, and they go out on the sidewalk, and they draw these bizarre pictures. And, and I drive home at night, and I whip up the driveway, and inevitably they leave a piece of chalk out. And I'll get out of my car, and, and I'll look at the wheel, and one of the tires is just coated with pink. You know, I'm like, oh, what? Oh, I drove over a piece of chalk. And I'll walk back, and there's the piece of chalk. And this big, you know, piece of chalk is just, like, ground down into nothing. It's just, you know, dust driven into the asphalt, into the little cracks. That's the picture here of this word. It's someone who's just been crushed so that there's hardly anything left. There's nothing left of the person. They're crushed, and they're lowly in spirit. God is a great and awesome God, but He's also this compassionate and merciful God on those who are crushed. Uh, isn't that where Jesus was? How did Jesus do His ministry? I mean, He's always hanging out with people who are crushed. If you wanted to find Jesus, you didn't go to the centers of power. You didn't go to the, uh, the leaders and the rulers. He wasn't there politicking and pushing and lobbying. Uh, you know, Jesus was... You want to find Jesus, go out in the village. Find, find the leper colony. Uh, find the, the tax collectors and the sinners. Where are the prostitutes? Where are the drunks? That's where you'd find Jesus. He's hanging out with them. In fact, he got a reputation. He's the friend of sinners. He was always among these people who were sort of shuffled away to the edges of society. He, he spent his ministry itinerating, itinerating in these little villages that you never would go to normally. And he would show up in these villages and he'd heal people and he'd be with the broken and with those who were humble. Because that's the heart of God is with those who are, who are broken and hurting. Uh, we find all over the Old Testament, God has a special compassion for orphans, 
widows, the powerless, the oppressed, those who cannot speak for themselves in society. This is where Christ ministered. But it's not just those who are physically contrite and uh, physically broken. But, but I think that the point here is that it's really those whose hearts are broken, who are spiritually humble, who are, who are, whose uh, souls are repentant and broken before God. I think that's the broader context. If you look at verse 17, notice the context is really more about sin. He says, I was enraged by his sinful greed. I punished him and hid my face in anger, yet he kept on in his willful ways. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will guide him and restore comfort to him, creating praise on the lips of the mourners of Israel. So it's not just the physical brokenness, but it's really the spiritual brokenness. Of course, the two are connected. The two are connected because it's typically when we're physically or emotionally or financially broken that, that we'll begin to start taking a more honest look at our moral and spiritual condition. That often goes together. And I think that's why Jesus was among those who were physically broken or emotionally broken because he knew that, that they didn't have their I'm okay, I'm fine, I'm great, I'm good sort of wall up. And he knew that they might listen. And, and so you find him among those who are physically broken because they would be more primed to take an honest look at their souls and, and their moral condition. And so God sends Christ and he's out among those who are Repentant, who are crushed because of their sins. Which makes me wonder, you know, when's the last time I really felt crushed by the nastiness of my sin? When's the last time I shed a tear of, over the fact that, that I sin against a holy God? When is the last time it pierced my soul in that way? I mean, I, I wish I could give you a date just right off the top of my head. Oh, last week I was... I don't know. I, I, I just so easily justify my behavior. I justify my actions. And, and I don't look at my heart and say, wow, look how holy God is. and Look how little I worship and love Him. Do, do I really grieve? When's the last time I grieved over the, the spiritual complacency of the church? When's the last time I grieved over the moral uh, death spiral that our culture is in? When is the last time I grieved over my sin? the way that Isaiah is talking about. I just, I can't remember. But if you want God, if you want to be with God, well, that's the two places you can find Him. Either you go to the high and holy place or we are contrite and humble before Him. And isn't that where Isaiah was back in Isaiah 6? He saw his sinfulness, he saw his brokenness, and God was with him. Look back at Isaiah 6 very quickly. Isaiah sees God, and then in verse 5, he cries out and confesses his sinfulness, mourns his, his unbelief. And then what happened in verse 6? Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. The altar, of course, is the place where sacrifices for sin are made. Verse 7, with it he touched my lips my mouth and said see this has touched your lips your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for and then I heard the voice of the Lord saying whom shall I send and who will go for us and I said here am I send me in, in his brokenness and humility before God in his contrition and repentance and, and just vomiting out his sin that's where God meets him and God cleanses him and God now commissions him 
And so, you know, how is it that Isaiah became a prophet of God? Did he just have a better resume than everybody else? No, he got lower than everybody else. He got low. And he humbled himself before God. God is, is near those of his children who are, who are repentant. It's kind of like, you know, there's a special compassion that's aroused in me when my kids are throwing up. I, you know, I have some kids and every once in a while they get sick. And, you know, when, one, when a little kid is over the toilet vomiting, I, it's like there's something in me as a parent that you just have to go there and pat their back and you want to be close to them and soothe them. And, you know, what is repentance? It's the vomit of the soul. That's, what, that's why it hurts. That's why it's not fun. But, but repentance is just saying, you know, oh, God, I'm, I can't believe I did that. Ah! <laughs> I don't want to get too graphic here, but, you know, that's <laughs> the idea. It, it's, it's just confession is, is just pouring out the, the sin in my life and, and confessing that it is sin and grieving over it, not because I got busted, but grieving over it because I've offended my Lord and, and grieved over my sin because it offends God. And there's something about God, like, like that parent, he just comes down from his high and holy place and he draws near to his children when they're vomiting out their sin and, and he, he puts his arms around us and he's there with us. If you want God, you either got to go way, way up or you have to go way, way down and get on your face before him and confess your utter total need for Him and helplessness. You know what's interesting? In times of revival in church history, one of the marks of true revival has always been repentance for sin. There's different times in history when God will just visit His people and and thousands will be saved in a year and hundreds will will be baptized in a year. It'll just be a massive move of God's Spirit. Uh, One of those times was the Second Great Awakening in America. Uh, which began around 1800 and went till 1830 or so, depending on how you look at the dates. And that Second Great Awakening uh, started in Kentucky, in the Great Kentucky Camp Meeting Revivals. And uh, near the end of that, there was a pastor who gave a report to his, as a Presbyterian, gave a report to his synod of what was going on in those revivals. And actually, I included some of it here in your sermon notes on page two. And here's what he said. If you look on page 2 of the box at the top, he says, As far as I can see, there appears to be in the subjects of this work, in other words, the people who've undergone the spiritual revival, a deep, heart-humbling sense of the great unreasonableness, abominable nature, pernicious effects, and deadly consequences of sin, and the absolute unworthiness in the sinful creature of the smallest crumb of mercy from the hand of a holy God. There appears to be in them a deep mourning on account of their own sins, the sins of their fellow professors, and the sins of the careless and the profane, and particularly for the base sin of ingratitude to God for His many mercies, and conviction of the justice of God in condemning and punishing His offending creatures. And I was just you know, thinking, reading that, I'm like, when's the last time I had that first sentence a deep, heart-humbling sense of the great unreasonable, subnominal nature, pernicious effects, and deadly consequences of sin. You know, do I view sin that way? Or am I like, that's eh, no big deal. You know, how do I view sin? And when, isn't it interesting? In those times in history when revival comes, where it's like heaven came down and touched earth, one of the effects, not the only one, but one of the effects is that people have this vision of sin as so horrible, and they repent and they turn to God. And it's as they get low into the dust and humble themselves before God 
that somehow God is right there with them, loving them, ministering to them, and lifting them up and changing them so that they can say, I've been revived. You know, I understand this runs totally counter to the conventional wisdom of our culture. The conventional wisdom says that if you want to be built up and revived and spiritually strengthened and know God or whatever you want to put it, you've got to go up. That's what our culture says. You've got to pump yourself up. You know, you have to sort of build this hot air balloon and then breathe the hot air of your self-justification into the balloon and hopefully you can lift yourself up. You know, I, I'm, I'm a, a nice person. I drive a nice car, so I must be a nice person. I have a good job, so I must be a good person. I'm educated. I, I'm nice. I'm not an axe murderer. Um, you know, I'm like, I lost 10 pounds. My cholesterol is going down. You know, I'm doing good. I, I'm, I'm progressing. And, and we sort of build this case for why we, we are acceptable in God's sight, hoping that if we just blow enough hot air into the balloon, it's going to take us up, up, up. But man, it's just the opposite. You've got to get out of the balloon. You've got to get in the dirt and say, God, I am not worthy. And I understand this just runs counter to the way we think. But a lot of things God does runs counter to the way we think. So humility and repentance and confession are the first steps. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn who grieve over their sin, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. makes me think of that story, and I'll close with this, that story in the Gospel of Luke. As I studied this passage, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. It's on page 1038. Let's just read this little parable together. Familiar parable, but it's so powerful. And it illustrates everything that Isaiah has been trying to teach us. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Page 1038. It says, Luke 18, 9, To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the religious leader, and one the tax collector, dirtbag scumball. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get, and I haven't got a speeding ticket, and uh, you know, I pay my taxes, and you know, you just go on and on and on fill in the blanks with all the self-justification we do. But the tax collector, the scumball dirtbag tax collector, stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So who was God with? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, this man, that is the sinner, rather than the other man, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I just pray that God would break our hearts and break my heart and cause us to grieve over the, the weakness of our faith and the weakness of our desires for Jesus. Jesus Christ is here with us now. And He's here to draw close to anyone who will simply 
humble themselves before Him and call out for His forgiveness and mercy. He's high and exalted. He's in a high and holy place that we could never ever reach. But He's also with those who are humble and contrite and lowly before Him. I'd like us to pray a prayer together. It's in the sermon notes on page 3. This is a Puritan prayer of confession. And uh, it's on the third page. It, it starts off, O oh Lord, not a day of my life has passed. That's the one. There's a few, a few typos in it. My spell checker didn't catch them, so I apologize for those. But I guess that's the whole point of this thing is confession. So <laughs> how appropriate. So let's just, let's just pray this together. Would you pray with me out loud? O oh Lord, no day of my life has passed that has not proved me guilty in Thy sight. Prayers have been uttered from a prayerless heart. Praise has often prayerless sound. My best services are filthy rags. Blessed Jesus, let me find a covert in Thy appeasing wounds. Though my sins rise to heaven, Thy merits soar above them. Though unrighteousness weighs me down to hell, Thy righteousness exalts me to Thy throne. All things in me call for my rejection. All things in Thee plead for my acceptance. I appeal from the throne of perfect justice to Thy throne of boundless grace. Grant me to hear Thy voice assuring me that by Thy stripes I am healed, that Thou wast bruised for my iniquities, that Thou hast been made sin for me, that I might be righteousness in Thee, that my grievous sins, my manifold sins, are all forgiven, buried in the ocean of Thy concealing blood. I am guilty, but pardoned, lost, but saved, wandering, but found, sinning, but cleansed. Keep me always clinging to Thy cross. Would you please stand?